So as you've been hearing, today is the first Sunday in Advent. I very much appreciated what the lectionary reading said this morning. It says that we, carrying divine life in us as we do, we, each of us, sharing in that carrying, together what we need is here. What we need is here. That's the source of the great hope that we explore and we stir up during the annual revisiting of the theme of hope and peace and joy and love during Advent. So again, this being the beginning of this season, we are set to remind ourselves over the next four weeks that there is a truer truth and hope is at the core of it. The hope that darkness is overcome by light. The hope that death is overcome by life. The hope that worry is overcome by peace. And the hope that misery is overcome by joy and hatred by love. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned a survey that had struck me. It's been rolling around in my head since I read it, not to the least of which because I knew Advent was right around the corner. We ministers, we carry a kind of a calendar around in our head because certain times of the year we are called to revisit the important spiritual themes of our tradition. And this year, the juxtaposition of that survey and this season of Advent has been striking to me. The survey was conducted by the American Psychological Association. They do uh, an annual assessment of a statistically significant number of Americans each year asking the questions that go to what is our national level of stress. And this year, again, this is the part I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, nearly 60% of us answered this, these questions. I think it was a large sampling, uh, almost 4,000 people. Uh, nearly 60% of us said that they believe that this is the lowest point in U.S. history that they can remember. Almost 60% of us believe that now is worse than World War II, now is worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis, now is worse than 9-11, now is worse than the Great Recession. Many of us are feeling the darkness of this moment. Many of us are fearing that the future is not going to turn out well. Many have a deep sense of loss of cohesion at a national level, our national cohesion, but also in an interpersonal level because families are divided over the same conflicts that divide our nation, as are neighborhoods and job sites and classrooms and churches. Spaces that where we often find relational strength have become places of struggle, places of loss, places, places that are painful. Now, personally, I am suspicious of our collective perception at this moment. I suspect things are not as bad as many of us perceive they are, especially when compared to every other difficult times we've faced as a nation. The Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, there was a very real threat of nuclear annihilation of every major city on the eastern seaboard. But it doesn't really matter whether it's intrinsically true. The perception of despair has a self-fulfilling engine built into it. In other words, perceive that this is the worst time in memorable history and it can easily become the worst time in memorable history. That was the dynamic going on behind FDR's famous quote during the Depression, that what we really have to be afraid of is fear. That's the thing that is the problem. 
Well, it's been that kind of year for many of us, even in our own community. If we look at the thing under the thing, this sense of national despair has actually been brewing for a while. It kind of came to a head in this last year, but it's been going for some time. Well, that's a thing. It's a thing that we've experienced. But, praise be to God, gathering the accumulated wisdom of history and gathering the accumulated wisdom of spirituality, our ancient saints and our sages have created a recurring calendar, and they call us back to critical spiritual themes year after year after year. Now, in some years, especially those years that seem to be going very well, the tradition of going back over these themes hardly seems relevant at all. When times are just rolling along quite nicely, if we're not careful, we can actually become anesthetized to these great important truths. But in other years, these themes hit us at a time when we are being ravaged by a spiritual thirst, making these truths water to our souls. And I think this is one of those years. The ancients call us each year as we approach the winter equinox to face off with fear, to face off with despair, and to do so using a robust spiritual practice, hope. Well, it turns out that dark and disturbing times, angry and fearful times, these are not new in human history. They've happened before. It turns out that times of social anxiety and civil unrest, these things have happened before, quite often, actually. Struggle on behalf of the outgrouped in a society, that's happened before. Fear of loss, fear of calamity, all happened before with recurring regularity. So it turns out that this is one of the relevant years. That's not all that uncommon from a historical perspective. It turns out that hope being an important theme for this moment in history, again, not that uncommon. There have been lots and lots and lots of years where need, like the thirsty body needs water, need for exploring the themes that the calendar brings back to us at this moment has been particularly relevant. Hope, peace, joy, and love. I very much appreciated what Vicki did for us. She created our new uh, Advent banners, hitting the, the themes of Advent, hope and peace and joy and love. How hopeful is our nation these days? Yeah. How hopeful are you? How hopeful do we feel individually, personally right now? Or peaceful, or joyous, or loving. So again, praise be to God, this calendar that we inherited is particularly relevant to us this year. It's almost like our ancient forebears knew it would be. It's almost like our ancient forebears understood something about the human condition that we are living. So here's how the calendar goes. Contrary to popular belief, the Christmas holiday does not begin on Black Friday. <laughs> In fact, the Feast of Christmas does not begin until Christmas Day. Uh, then, once it starts, it goes on for 12 days. 
12 days of feasting and celebrating. Now, given how our society functions and operates, given how things go for us, it's very difficult to honor the actual dates that are associated with the calendar, but we can distill out the reasons why the calendar was organized the way that it was, and we can integrate those underlying principles into our lives. Here's what the ancient calendar does. It sets up a balance between celebration and preparation for celebration. Uh, We spend equal parts eating and singing and dressing up and meeting with friends and quieting ourselves and focusing on important spiritual themes and stirring up these vital truths. Enough time to prepare to celebrate and enough time to actually celebrate. Advent is the time for preparing, the time for quieting, and the Feast of Christmas is the time for celebrating. Now we Christians, we borrowed the date that we celebrate the story of Jesus' birth. We borrowed it from other religious traditions, and we borrowed it from other social traditions. In the northern hemisphere, where Christianity took so much root, uh, this 22nd of December is the annual date at which the planet shifts on uh, the planet axis shifts in relationship to the sun. And that brings about the 22nd being the darkest day of the year. That is the day when we look forward and realize we have three or four more months before winter death is going to give way to springtime life. And so for century after century after century, when we were worried that our stores would not survive the winter, when we were worried that our husbands or our wives or our children would succumb to the cold and not make it to summer. At the darkest moment of the year, when despair was always lurking in the back of our minds, that is when our ancient wisdom insisted that we begin to prepare ourselves to, ce- prepare ourselves to celebrate and then afterwards to celebrate vigorously. The calendar calls us to gather together in the darkness and ready ourselves, and then to gather ourselves in the darkness and sing out and visit friends and give kisses and share gifts. Our calendar calls us to light fires to sing around, to prepare extravagant foods to eat, to rest from the work that we normally do, to tell stories to our children and to one another, to sing songs we don't normally sing, Tell stories of remembrance, stories of meaning, stories that help us stir up a deep savoring of life's goodness. And this calendar call, this annual invitation, is very important and very helpful. It impacts us deeply when we yield to its call. Once a year, if we point ourselves toward hope and peace and joy and love. In the pointing, we are reminded to affirm and to feed and to stir up in ourselves and to stir up in one another those attributes of hope and peace and joy and love. And it turns out that this insisting, insisting of ourselves and insisting of one another, stirring ourselves toward these essential themes is a necessary part of our ability to survive and thrive in the darkness. 
this stirring up of these essential themes is an essential part of our ability to survive and thrive in the hardship, in the resistance. Yes, it is dark, we acknowledge. Yes, it is cold. Yes, the crops are dead in the field. Yes, the herds have gone. It appears that life is death. It appears that light is dark. But at this very moment, we sing. At this very moment, we eat together. At this moment, we love. And at this moment, we make love. We prepare to give birth. We celebrate the hope for tomorrow and stir ourselves to hope for something that is truer than darkness. We sing in the face of darkness. We light fires in the face of darkness. We festoon our homes in the face of darkness. And we gather around hope and peace and joy and love because these ancient truths are truer truths. They're very easy to lose sight of, but they are truer truths. Hope is truer than despair. Peace is truer than worry. Joy is truer than misery. Love is truer than hate. Our ancient tradition said it this way. A voice cries in the darkness. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare yourselves. God light is coming. Prepare yourselves. God light is bigger than darkness. The sun will return and give you life. God life will return and restore your hope. Another prophet said it this way, The day will come when mountainous obstacles will be brought low and impassable valleys will be filled in. The road of hope will become clear before you. They called it the day of the Lord. Those words don't carry the same significance and meaning in our culture as they did in theirs, so we use other language. The day is coming when justice overcomes oppression. The day is coming when healing overcomes destruction. The day is coming when peace overcomes conflict. The day is coming when hope overcomes despair. And it is the act of holding tenaciously to that hope that is actually part of the culmination of the hope. Behold, a young woman shall bear a son, another prophet wrote, and his name will be called God with us, and in him we will see what we had lost sight of, the day of the Lord set before us, the hope of God set before us. So we sing. We sing when it's dark. We sing of our great hope that nobody is left behind. This great hope is not just for the sectarian few, but for all the people's. All the people God has put on this earth, for all the nations, all the peoples, all of us. The day is coming, the day of the Lord. The day is coming. That's what the calendar reminds us. To focus on truths greater than darkness. To stir one another to hope more luminous than the night. To be with our people and to hope together. To be with our friends and to anticipate together to be with one another and articulate our yearning together, to be with one another and to, our, and to articulate our longing. We actually go to work on hope. We actually go build our hope. 
We do the things that remind us of hope's great truth. We elevate our vision to greater things than those that capture us so easily. That's why we sing the special songs. That's why we wear the special clothes. That's why we travel to be with those who are dear to us. That's why we eat the special foods. It is our calendar. It is our rhythm. It is our tradition to sing when it is the darkest. But that's easy to say and tough to do when times are tough. I got more than a little bit of pushback in the first lesson. (laughs) They said, yeah, Doug, that's a crock. (laughs) It's tough in our nation right now. And it is tough to hear the wisdom of the ancients. It's easy to take those words that come from our scriptures, to take those words that come from our songs, to take those words that come at the call of this calendar and think to ourselves, bah. It's easy to get so entrenched in the battle and get so caught up in the ugliness and get so caught up in the awfulness and the loss and the grief and the anger and the fear. I'll tell you what's easy, bah. It's easy to do. It's a common temptation. Especially for those who are familiar with the words of the ancient scriptures, for those who are familiar with the themes that have been heard over so many advents, it's easy to weigh the news or to weigh the social media feed or to weigh the mood of the nation or our own people, to weigh those things more heavily in our experience than the old familiar words or the old familiar themes. So to help us, I thought this Advent we might pause for a moment and think about these ancient truths not from the vantage of the ancient words, not from the the vantage point of the ancient texts or Advent or even anything ancient. Here are a couple of books you do not have to read. (laughs) They're long, they're detailed, they're good, really good. But I'm going to tell you what they say so you don't have to read them. I'm going to save you a bunch of time. In 2011, Steven Pinker wrote the book, The Better Angels of Our Nature. It is a very data-heavy book. Lots of documentation after documentation after documentation, data point after data point, all of which try to say two things. First, across every society on the earth, across geography and across the nations, there has been an inexorable trend Violent treatment of one person by another, violent treatment of one group by another has declined intensively. That is true century on century, generation on generation, taking into account that the 20th century we think of as one of the bloodiest centuries there was with World War I and with World War II and with the Holocaust and with Vietnam and with all the things that happened, it wasn't even number six in recorded history. His premise is that our collective access to our onboard empathy, our collective access to self-control, empathy and self-control are in an inexorable rise that has brought about this shift in violent treatment of people by one another. His premise is that our access to our capacity for reasonable problem-solving and our access to a collective uh, moral center Overall, over the long span, overall, our collective access to these things has had the result that generation after generation, century on century, that violence toward others 
is in rapid decline. The point is not that things do not go badly. They do. The point is not that we don't have a responsibility when they go badly to steer our world aright. We do. The point is it's been working. The point is that all those advents when we sang in the dark, all of those advents when we talked about our hope and we articulated our longing for a better world, a world that more reflected the light and life of God, those prayers were answered. It is better than it was. The process is by no means finished. We have by no means arrived, but we are on the way. Now, the other book on the slide, The Evolution of God by Robert Wright, says this. We try to talk about God, which is an exercise in futility because God cannot be talked about. God is too big a construct to be contained in our minds, but we certainly have to try. Our scriptures say if we didn't try, the rocks themselves would try and cry out to talk about God. So we try. We try to talk about that which cannot be talked about. But the way that we talk about God has gone through these great leaps forward in a direction. In other words, the way that we talk about God through the centuries is heavily determined by practical things, social things, trade, access to travel, whether we've arranged our uh, relationships in a zero-sum or a non-zero-sum process. A lot of things determine how we articulate, how we talk about the non-talkaboutable reality we use a code word for to say God. But the thing is, in our attempts to try and talk about God, for all the forces that have been shaping how we do it, all of the people who have been thinking, all of these collective thoughts and speaking all of these words, trying to articulate the process of how God has uh, been talked about through the centuries has not been circular. The process has actually been linear. There has been a trajectory. In other words, whenever God goes through a historical leap, it is a leap forward. Whenever our way of talking about God moves, it moves in a direction. And the direction is that God always, every century, becomes less tribal and more inclusive. God always becomes less and less exclusive and more and more inclusive. No matter where we are in what part of the world, whenever there is a leap in the way God is thought about, it is always less and less the God of us and our people and more and more the God of all people. There's a trajectory in how our way of thinking about God has evolved. And it always includes a bigger and bigger version of us, a bigger and bigger version of we. God invites us more and more into oneness and less and less into the divisive versions that we have of two-ness. Sure, we get fractious, and sure, we revert back to tribalism. It was so much better when God was just our God, and God liked us better than God liked them, and we could call down God's punishment on them. That was so much nicer, and so every once in a while, we will revert back and try and do that all over again because it just feels so comforting, but it doesn't stay. God can't stay in our thinking in the box of being just for us and not for them. Our God gets bigger and bigger. Again, it's not a perfectly linear journey, but it is a linear journey. 
The trend is undeniable, and the trend is forward. So between those two non-Advent, non-Bible, non-ancient text sources, I am stirred to hope, and I hope you are too. By the words of our saints, by the words of our sages that echo these truths, drawing from a preacher in the 1800s who was uh, engaged in the fight for abolition, Martin Luther King often spoke the words about the long arc of the moral universe. You might have heard that in one of his speeches or another. In other words, when we compare this long arc of moral progress to our own little lifespans, it is easy to lose hope. Because our own little lifespans don't last long enough to see how this arc unfolds. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. That was how it was phrased. Losing hope, that's easy. Anybody can do that. It's so easy to get caught up because it seems like justice takes so long. Because it seems like the world that we long for takes so long to unfold. And we live these brief little lifespan, just a few years on the earth. But here's the thing. We were not foolish each of those years when we gathered to sing in the dark because we were touching something true. We were not foolish each of those years when we gathered to light fires and to eat food and to enjoin one another to these essential truths of the flourishing life. We were not foolish when we gathered to encourage one another to hope and peace and joy and love. We were not foolish because these truths touch a deeper reality. They are truer than the poll that reports the stories that we are telling ourselves. They are truer than the feelings that we feel when we are locked in the struggle. They are truer than the accepted wisdom of the day. No lie can last forever. Truth, once crushed, will rise again. Our truth resonates generation after generation all the way back to the prophets. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain made low. The rough Places will be made smooth and the crooked places will be made straight. The glory of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God shall be revealed and we shall see it together. This Advent season, if you have a chance to listen to the Messiah, you will hear the words of the ancient prophet resonating to us now. Hope is not foolish. The ancient wisdom is not foolish. When our calendar calls us back to restore those again in our lives, our calendar is not foolish. So Holy Spirit, may a deep and abiding hope, a hope rooted in the indwelling spirit that each of us carry, a hope rooted in the experience of countless generations of testimonies of those who have gone before us, a hope that resides in each of us as we speak the truth one to another, as we sing the songs one to another, as we tell the stories one to another. May a deep and abiding hope arise from deep within us and carry us into the life that is set before us that we may be shapers of the world that is set before us. Be it so, Lord. Amen.